when Benjamin Netanyahu returned to the office of Prime Minister of Israel with the backing of some far-right coalition partners, he promised to overhaul the country's judicial system. Some in Israeli society feared that the planned legislation would cause untold damage to the democratic systems in the country and would open the door for the government to act unilaterally and without the permission of the parliament. The bill to change the judiciary passed its first reading in the Netanyahu-controlled Israeli parliament on February 21st. But on the streets, Israelis were already voicing their disapproval. Over the following months, the protests against the proposed law would grow in size and intensity, prompting an unprecedented showdown between the state and the citizens. This week on The New Arab Voice, we take stock of the protest movement. Why did the protest start? Why is Netanyahu seeking to change the judiciary? And what is the state of the controversial bill today? To help us get to the bottom of these questions and more, we sat down with Amjad Iraqi, senior editor at 972 magazine in Israel and policy member of Al Shabaka. I'm Hugo Goodridge, and this is The New Arab Voice. Amjad, the protests we saw recently in Israel were massive. What would we say prompted the protests? Well, the protests pretty much began as soon as the government was officially sworn in in late December. Uh, And the kind of, let's say, ostensible cause was uh, the government's primary agenda of trying to overhaul the Israeli judiciary. So that meant a series of different kind of bills and suggested laws to uh, basically extend political power uh, over the decision making around who sits in the courts, over the power of the courts to decide on Knesset legislation, uh, also kind of the uh, not just at the Supreme Court, but also at the lower levels of the judiciary. And this was sort of the, the kind of main flagship agenda of these protests, saying that this was really an entry point for this far-right government led by Benjamin Netanyahu to assert much more authoritarian control over the state, to remove checks and balances, and to remove these uh, these institutions that are regarded as fundamental to Israeli democracy. Now, this is, of course, a flagship agenda, but it's uh, really very much kind of a microcosm or entry point for a lot of other uh causes and grievances that uh, a lot of Israeli society has towards this far-right government. Uh, so it's not just about the courts, it's about this kind of religious vision that the government's promoting. It is about this uh, ability for the government to assert executive power regardless and to uh, kind of create Israel in its own image in a way that many, for example, secular liberal Zionists uh, or more centrist Zionists don't uh, appeal to. So this was uh, kind of the thing that really galvanized a lot of people to come out into the streets and it's only grown as the far right kind of really pulls ahead and pushes ahead uh, with its agenda in the Knesset. Uh, as you say, these these attempts to change the judicial system, or as he would say, reform the judicial system, have also been linked with his uh, Netanyahu's ongoing personal problems with the judiciary. 
perhaps you could briefly uh, summarize what those personal problems are and how intrinsically linked are his personal problems with the judiciary and these more ideological attempts to change the judiciary? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret that uh, Netanyahu has for several years now been uh, under uh, under corruption charges on several kind of uh, major cases. Uh, that trial is still kind of ongoing. For the prime minister, it's an agenda of like trying to influence and shape the court enough that we'll be able to get him off the hook on these corruption cases. And because Netanyahu is such a central figure in Israeli politics, the kind of the weight of his political authority has helped to really drive that issue to the forefront uh, of his governments for uh, quite a number of years. All that being said, you know, even though this is the main thing that's really having him sort of push against this massive wave of protest, there is a massive system that stands behind him that stands to gain from this uh, assertion of political power over the courts. Uh, the Israeli right-wing camp for many, many years has really put the the judiciary, and especially the Israeli Supreme Court, in its crosshairs to uh, basically remove what they see as a kind of core obstacle to the Zionist rights agenda. Um, This is influenced by many factors, but a, a very crucial one is the idea that the state needs to be able to pursue its agenda against uh, Palestinians, especially in occupied territories, on things like uh, annexation of the West Bank, on things like certain military practices that can't be challenged, uh, on the discriminatory and racist laws that try to enshrine Jewish supremacy. And the Israeli right wants to do this, you know, with the goal of ensuring that there is no ability for people to push back. And this is the pushback from Palestinians themselves, who've especially been using the Israeli courts to try to fight against and hold off these kind of plans, uh, but also among Israelis who might also dissent or critique these issues. So there's this massive system that's really behind Netanyahu. Like if it was just him alone, it wouldn't be enough. But the fact that there is this wider um, this wider vision that's at hand, it is really what's helping to drive that. Um, and the fact that this far right camp has this kind of uh, rather comfortable majority right now in the Knesset, it means that it's able to really just push these through without uh, without real dissent in the Knesset. And the protests are the only thing that's really creating a bit of a, uh, an opposing balance of power to, uh, to try to stop that. Do you think um, that Netanyahu is you know, using the far right's ambitions for the courts for his own personal gain? He's seen that the courts are what's holding, you know, is is causing him a lot of personal problems and he can use his new far right uh, allies in the coalition for his own benefit. And it it works for both of them because the far right get what they want and he'll get what he wants. Is this a cynical ploy by him or does he does he also share these same ideological beliefs about the courts? There's definitely a synergy of these kind of, you know, of uh, the prime minister's personal interests and the kind of wider ideological uh, agenda. And, you know, Netanyahu has always been an enigma in many respects. And he's there's no secret about his kind of right wing ideology. The extent to which he believes it is always a bit of a question mark. But Bibi is a very tactical politician. He's a really smart prime minister and he knows how to play the political game. Uh, to his benefit. And really what drives him very much is self-interest. Um, so even if he you know, believes in some of the ideological agenda, 
for him, his personal survival and political survival is what comes first. Um, but so, yeah, in many ways, this is a marriage of convenience. I mean, I don't think Netanyahu necessarily wants to be in the current coalition that he has, because especially people, figures like uh, Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, for him, kind of cause him a lot of trouble. And for many years, Netanyahu's previous governments, you know, would pursue very similar agendas, you know, including creeping annexation, including discriminatory laws, uh, fulfilling this kind of right wing vision for Israel. But he would do it very tactically. He did it very piecemeal. He would he had a way of going about it. And the way that uh, the far right parties uh, like the religious Zionism, Zionism Party or Tzmah Yehudit, they're much more brazen. They're very out there. They want to go fast paced. So this is a a big tactical difference that exists within the coalition. And it is causing Bibi a lot of kind of trouble and concern, but Netanyahu also doesn't really have a choice. He knows that as much ruckus as this coalition is causing, it's still right now his only way to maintain his own survival. Uh, and this is the accumulation of the fact that he's alienated many of these previous right-wing uh, partners. He even used to partner with centrist parties and he alienated them as well. And so he's kind of holed himself into this very far-right religious coalition. Um, so as long as that synergy still exists, he's going to try holding on to this government as long as possible. The response to these attempts to reform the judiciary was you know, massive, on the ground, by the Israeli citizens. The, the protests were, I think, not unfair to say, unprecedented. The response from international governments was also pretty damning you know even the the u.s really opened their eyes a bit and said hey hey hey, what's going on do you think netanyahu's government was surprised by the backlash to their judicial plans both at home and abroad definitely i think everyone was surprised by the scale of this i mean but by all accounts and objectively speaking this is really one of the most impressive campaigns of civil disobedience uh seen in the country um, we're not just talking about like the hundreds of thousands who've taken to the streets, but the fact that uh, companies and corporations, uh, senior figures, artists, writers, uh, former political figures, uh, the fact that even uh, army reservists, like uh, soldiers in the reserve, are also like saying they'll refuse to, refuse to, uh, to sign up for their military enlistment. Like this is a huge, huge campaign in many respects. And like you said, the fact that something about this uh, far-right government has really opened the way for uh, even foreign politicians, even the United States, to actually speak out against uh, the Israeli government in a way that would have been completely unheard of uh, just a few years ago. Um, and these are even from, like, you know, kind of staunch pro-Israel allies uh, in Congress. Like many strong supporters of Israel, I'm very concerned. And I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue on this road. And uh, I've sort of made that clear. I hopeful, hopefully, uh, the prime minister will act in a way that he can try to work out some genuine compromise. But that remains to be seen. It is quite extraordinary in in that um, in that respect. The closest thing that this could be compared to was uh, a mass protest movement in 2011, uh, where Israelis also took to the streets. Uh, uh, regarding like social economic issues, social justice issues, uh, but even that doesn't compare to what you're seeing today. Um, and there are a lot of questions as to why you know this has really kind of broken that glass ceiling in many ways, um, but uh, it's still being kind of uh, uh, used and capitalized on. Um, but uh, one has to see now exactly how far that's going, uh, precisely because uh, judicial uh, plans for the moment have been paused. 
but as I mentioned earlier, the fact that there are other issues that Israeli society uh, still has grievances with this government, we'll have to see how much that still galvanizes them in the same way that it did before. Mm. We've, we've already mentioned that the protests were massive and they happened over multiple weekends and, and only ever really seemed to grow from weekend to weekend. Uh, I think we need to, to fight now because this is the, this is the money time. This is the, the, the zero moment that we should do everything we can to stop this uh, rules. What was the atmosphere like at the protests? You know, with all those people there, was everyone there for the same reason? And was everyone there hoping for the same outcome? Or was it more disparate? It certainly depends who you ask. Um, I think for most of the Jewish Israelis who've been going to the protests, they all went for different uh, issues. Uh, like I said, the judiciary is a flagship, but there are a lot of other um, kind of core causes. And you see even in the protests, you know, there are kind of different camps or different sections. So uh, you have kind of like a more like militaristic or like army reservist type camp. You have people who are focusing on economic issues. You have uh, an anti-occupation camp, uh, ranging from anti-Zionist to kind of uh, uh, Zionist leftists who see the occupation as uh, as a core issue. So you have all these different pieces, and so there's nothing particularly, you know, at first glance, it almost seems like there's nothing really uniting them. But it's for them, it, um, they see this current government and this coalition as the core obstacle to all these different agendas. Um, so they're not really all on the same page, not under discourse necessarily, but it's, again, this sort of tactical alliance to try to block this coalition, if not completely uh, overthrow it. No matter how it takes, no matter what effort, no matter what sources we need, we'll fight for our life and for our children's life. And so when you talk to Jewish Israelis who are at this, you know, they're quite, they speak about their excitement. They It is, and it is for them like a very um a very defining moment even talking about children kind of experiencing what it means to kind of be part of a mass movement uh they're talking about what it means to be like an army reservist who also takes a stand like this is in the jewish israeli zionist discourse now when you look at for example palestinian citizens of israel most of them are not coming to these protests for a whole host of reasons those who are going and they're usually involved with certain activist groups that also partners with uh, jewish israelis and tries to put a more um, like critical stance regarding equality and the end of the occupation. If you ask a lot of Palestinian citizens who go to these demonstrations, it's let's say it's not the same feeling as Jewish Israelis, if or many even become alienated and quite um, disillusioned by it. When you're a Palestinian citizen going to these marches, you're basically walking under a sea of Israeli flags. Like that is the principal symbol of this, you know, quote unquote, fight for democracy. But for Palestinian citizens, the Israeli state was never democracy. And in its current format cannot be democracy, certainly for them. When they see Jewish Israelis talk about equality for Palestinian citizens, it's like, what do you really mean by equality? Um, and by many accounts, most Jewish Israelis there don't want to talk about the occupation. So even though there's quite a vibrant and growing anti-occupation camp, uh, the mainstream of these protesters don't want to hear about Palestinians. They don't want to hear from Palestinians. So there's this dissonance that really exists between these two societies and the way they're experiencing these demonstrations. Um, and so for and while Jewish Israelis are really, you know, enthralled at this moment, for Palestinian citizens, it's kind of reaffirming, most Palestinian citizens at least, it's really reaffirming uh, the bubble that exists for Jewish Israeli society about how they understand their country and their democracy and their uh, and, and their place in this place.
their place in this land, excuse me. We're here fighting for our democratic values, the values that this country was built on, the values that our grandparents and our parents fought for, and we're continuing that fight so that this country will continue to be the home that it is for, for our kids and their kids as well. What was the atmosphere like on the streets? Was it friendly? It's certainly vibrant, um, and you get the sense like of a lot of protests almost being there, at least especially in the early stages, almost as like a party. Um, and this mass celebration of Israeli society in many respects. Um, as time went by, you started having Israeli police getting more aggressive towards the protesters, uh, especially because the protesters themselves were also trying to do things like block highways and so were trying to be more um, kind of assertive in their tactics. And so when that confrontation, when those confrontations started to happen with the police, it started getting you know, a little bit more rowdy. Uh, but that itself was also radicalizing for a lot of Jewish Israelis. So, um, and it depended on different weeks and how the police were acting at certain times. Again, for Israeli society, it's one thing. For, for Palestinian citizens, it was, uh, it's a very, very different story. I mean, you say you've got, you know, reservist camps, you've got Zionist camps, you've got anti-occupation camps. Would we say that Israel was represented as a whole, as a wide and representative selection of society at the protests? Or was it actually, despite actually the number of people there, it was actually still a relatively narrow group? It's certainly broad in many respects, but not broad enough to encompass all of Israeli society. So Palestinian citizens are the first and foremost. The fact that the vast majority of the community, even if they, for example, you know, they recognize the danger of the far-right government and they know that they're the first ones who will be um, hurt and impacted by it, they, they just can't bring themselves to come to these. So that's already like 20% of the population of the citizenry who are just not present um, and don't feel that these protests belong to them. Um, but also uh, within Jewish Israeli society itself, at least broadly speaking or the majority speaking, most of the protesters who are going down are largely sort of Ashkenazi, white, Israelis, many of them middle class or like of a higher class they define themselves as kind of on the more liberal side of Zionism and liberal, not necessarily leftist, but liberal in terms of like, um, like liberal and secular, as opposed to kind of religious uh, and more cons- more conservative in um, within the kind of uh, Israeli Zionist spectrum. So that's actually most, that's the majority identity of these people. Many communities that you're not seeing, like Mizrahim, for example, it's not that there aren't sort of uh, Mizrahi groups or Mizrahis going to these, but most Mizrahi Israelis, uh, Jews of Middle Eastern descent, uh, vote for the right-wing parties, uh, or they also don't associate themselves with uh, largely Ashkenazi-led Israeli society, who they're seeing as that they're fighting for their own privilege in the society. Uh, the far-right government, keep in mind, is really trying to champion or trying to portray itself as a champion of these more marginalized or underprivileged Jewish Israelis, uh, Mizrahi being a huge uh a huge part of them. And this is why people like uh, Ben Veer also has really ridden on this um, wave of support. Also, the, the big, big uh, omission in all this, of course, are the Palestinians in occupied territories. I mean, right to, up to now, we've been talking about the citizenry, but we have to keep in mind that there are about 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip who live under the same regime, under the same state, under the same authority as these Jewish Israelis, and they cannot come to these protests, they're not allowed to come, they're not wanted to be heard from, um, and this, these demonstrations are not for them and not about them. And in many ways, these protests are uh, trying to sort of revert to a condition whereby 
uh, Israeli society returned to a place where they didn't have to think about Palestinians anymore. Uh, this bubble that they've constructed is being kind of burst by this uh, by this far right government, which is really putting Palestinians very much at the center of their identity as an enemy in a way that even previous governments did not do to this extent. So we're talking about who's able to access these demonstrations in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, but it cannot be emphasized enough the fact that Palestinians under military rule and under the under the boot of the Jewish Israeli society are not there and cannot be there. It, it's crucial there to understand the complete blind spot that Jewish Israeli society has about what they think of as democracy, as about what they think of as equality and what they're seeing as the end goal of removing this far right government. Mm. Um, Netanyahu won the election. He formed a government uh, and his judicial changes were a flagship agenda for him and his party. How did his supporters view these protests? And is there any sense that any of his uh, supporters might have gone off his planned policy ideas and uh, changed their minds about it? I think there's definitely debates within the Likud party and within among Likud supporters about about this. Um, we've seen even in the protests some pretty prominent uh, former Likud members, at least, uh, who've been who've spoken out quite uh, um, quite passionately against Netanyahu and against what the Likud party has become in its you know in their narrative. It, yeah, it's hard to gauge exactly what they're all thinking and feeling. Um, in many ways, Netanyahu has really wrapped the party around him in the sense that it's hard to think of the coup now without him. Um, and there are obviously questions about who will take the lead afterwards, etc. But um, for the moment, it seems that most people are kind of sticking, you know, sticking with it. Or even those Likud uh, party followers or supporters uh might come out, let's say, against this particular kind of plan, or maybe they still identify ideologically with the party, but are saying that we don't need to attack the judiciary. Like there are some Likudniks who still perceive the courts as crucial to maintain Israeli democracy. This is kind of your more liberal Likudniks, uh, you know, quote unquote. Um, and for them, it's like we oppose this particular move, but we are still with you and still want you to be in power. So there's a quite a complex um, nuance that exists among these followers. Uh, but again, for the moment, and I should also be added that, you know, these protesters are by no means sort of like leftist or center leftist. While you have some in, in them, it's actually quite a cons kind of conservative mainstream movement. And that mainstream is identifies as Zionist centrist. And there are even a lot of right wingers who are part of this. So the so it's quite a it's quite a complex struggle, but it really also reflects the the. Um, what's really been happening in Israeli politics over the past decade plus, whereby the debate in Israeli society and politics is not between right and left, but it's really a battle within the right-wing camp. And with, you know, and there are differences in, in certain kind of nuances and principles and agendas and identities, especially around religion and secularism. But it is this battle within the right, and I include the center, Israeli centrists in this, to really determine how they want to run the state. And even if they agree on a lot of, uh, core ideological premises. Uh, it's more about like almost like a tactical debate, more so than a real substantive uh, question of where is Israeli politics really trying to lead to. And you see this within the Likud party as well. Out of a sense of national responsibility, out of a will to prevent a rupture among our people, I have decided to pause the second and third readings of the bill in this session of the Knesset. 
in order to give time and reach that wide consensus. After you know, weeks and weeks of protests, eventually Netanyahu did address the nation and he said that they were suspending uh, their attempts at judicial reform. And what prompted this suspension? On one front, it was this accumulation of these demonstrations that were only growing and this accumulation of, um, uh, for example, businesses and corporations starting to announce that they were going to divest or not uh, um, kind of partake in certain Israeli economic activities in protest of the judicial reform. You started seeing a lot of kind of major financial institutions saying or like warning that the Israeli economy was going to be hit severely uh, domestically and internationally by this agenda. Um, a critical piece of this was um, the army refusals that were happening by reservists. Uh, these weren't just combat troops. We're talking about intelligence units and kind of most prominently also the Israeli Air Force. Um, as the weeks went by, you started having more and more kind of elite uh, uh, squads and forces saying that we will not show up for duty. We will not show up for training. And this was especially was really kind of bringing this movement up to a head. But the, the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, on one day that the Israeli airport uh, basically shut down its departures. And this was a combination of both the uh, the airport administration itself, which is also led by a prominent uh, Likud supporter, but also the Histadrut, which is kind of like the major trade uh, trade union here in Israel, which also kind of had been calling for strikes and was basically brought down uh, the airport itself. And, and later... Uh, on that day, that was when Netanyahu officially called off the legislation. Um, so it really was this buildup of many things to the point that now there was this ma- this massive disruption had reached to the point where it was also going to affect literally air travel. Um, and so this is really kind of brought all to a head. But like I said, while this pause may have been inevitable, just due to the massive amounts of pressure, it is also quite tactical. Uh like I mentioned, the fact that Ben Gvir got his National Guard is like an example of how the coalition still gets other parts of its agenda out there. Um, the fact that Netanyahu has done this before, he often sometimes in the past with different kinds of laws or, uh, or policies, etc., even things like uh, the question of uh, annexation. A few years ago, there were... Uh, uh, kind of almost driving forward legislation that would officially um, or like formally annex large parts of the West Bank. He also paused that, but that never meant that the uh, the goal was off the agenda. And on the contrary, it was always being pursued in different respects. So we've seen this before. And there was an expectation that a lot of Israelis would just kind of settle with this. Uh, but so far, that's not been the case. They're actually quite adamant, uh, even immediately after the pause was made, they still came out to, to the streets in large numbers. And the leaders of the protest movement are saying, you know, we're not buying this. And we know that there's more, that there's other things. We want to make sure that the legislation against the judiciary is completely off the table. Um, it became a bit more dormant just because of Passover and the Jewish holidays, but the protest is still ongoing. And we'll see again once the Knesset comes back if it uh, livens up again. Um, but yeah, it it really took this massive uh, social economic disruption of the state to kind of force Netanyahu to be like, okay, we need to, I need to get a hold of the coalition. I need to play more tactically, and let's see what we can do uh, through alternate routes. It's, it's no different than than all his statements. It's uh, first of all, it's pure lies, as as usual. He's just taking a break in order to come back stronger uh, and to let uh, the people, to send the people home. And, and he's, as usual, uh, identified the weaker 
the weaker chain guns and he's trying to, to take uh, to start talking with him it's, it's not going to do anything uh, just briefly, uh, Ben Gavir at the end of this got this uh, quote-unquote National Guard or, or personal militia, however you want to phrase it. Uh, who are they? What are they going to be responsible for? And who might they be responsible to? Uh, will it be Ben Gavir alone? So the details are still being worked out, um, but basically... The way it's been envisioned is that this National Guard will be under the direct uh, ownership of Ben Gvir himself as National Security Minister. Uh, now, keep in mind, the National Security Ministry is an entirely new portfolio that combines many different uh, kind of aspects of uh, uh, of security on both sides of the Green Line under Ben Gvir itself. Like he literally catered this ministry around himself and around his vision and seeing his role as to kind of instill or enforce security, uh, whether it's in the occupied territories or inside the Green Line, and especially so inside the Green Line uh, in uh, in Palestinian towns and neighborhoods, in what are called mixed cities, uh, places like Lid, like Ramli, like Haifa, Akka, uh, etc. And so for the moment, that seems to be what that militia will be. Um, and I should, and this is kind of separate from the Israeli police, which is also falls under his uh, portfolio, but has its own kind of chain of command. Uh, they also have their own kind of separate interests, and they're all, they're not on board with this idea of a national guard. So there's institutional fights that are also happening within the security establishment. And another thing I would add to this is that you know this idea of a national guard, on one hand, it's not particularly new. So we've actually seen. Previously, these kind of collaborations between sort of like uh, ci- Jewish-Israeli civilians and vigilantes that often ally either with Israeli police inside the Green Line or with Israeli soldiers in the occupied territories. Uh, so you end up seeing kind of settler-soldier collusion attacking Palestinian villages. Uh, in May 2021, during a mass uprising and huge repression at the time, um, you saw also police and these uh, Jewish vigilantes kind of also attacking Arab neighborhoods, even here in Haifa. Um and so it's kind of formalizing something that's been building for quite a while um, and an inherent alignment that the security establishment has in kind of uh, working together with Jewish civilians who kind of want to take action, per se. But another important thing about this National Guard is that it's really about trying to assert more executive control for the government. So in the same way that the attack on, ju- on the judiciary is trying to remove any checks or balances on what the government sees fit to do with legislation, the idea of the National Guard is also basically to give the, you know, the minister himself a direct way to say, I want you to uh, uh, impose your presence here, I want you to attack this place here, I need you to arrest this person here, without having to go through the mills of the police command, of the police commander himself, and to basically remove any kind of dissent or resistance from that. So, and this is really at the heart of a lot of far-right thinking, not just in Israel, but around the world. And it's about how you re- how do you remove any attempted pushback at uh, authoritarian executive uh, power. Um, and this is really what the Guard is about. Uh, and we'll see in the coming weeks and months if it actually does come to fruition. Again, there's a lot of debate and resistance even within the security establishment about this. But the very fact that it's even been said, the very fact it's even been mentioned, and the fact, again, that we've sort of seen the seeds of this already over the over the past couple of years uh, means that that itself has now set the precedent, that this idea will, might well outlive uh, Ben Gvir. And you may see even a kind of more 
more diverse Israeli government deciding, you know what, we actually do need a National Guard because of what we experienced in May 2021. So this is quite an alarming uh, development in many respects. You say the Knesset's not sitting at the moment. So what is the state of these judicial reforms now? He's just, they've been suspended, but will they return? And in what form might they return? Will they be the same judicial reforms or might they be sort of judicial reforms diet? So there are several bills and quite a few of them have actually kind of uh, are at a rather advanced stage. So you usually have to go through three readings in the Knesset and like in two committees and then the, and then the larger plenum uh, in order for um, a bill to be officially enacted into law. Um, now, there's several bills kind of floating around, but many of those have already passed their second reading. So it, it's just down to a matter of final vote. Um, and this is why also the protests kind of escalated in particular a few weeks ago, because it was they basically had had scheduled it to, to be voted upon. So really, if the coalition members decide on any random morning or any random hour, they can just go ahead and say, we're voting on the bill. And whoever's in the Knesset can just easily pass it through. You don't even need like a... You don't even need everyone in the Knesset to necessarily be there. So it's really on the brink. It's uh, And the only thing now holding it down is the fact that Netanyahu says, just keep it there. Like he's he's the only thing that's keeping this uh, kind of frozen on the table. Um, and again, there are other bills that are also kind of in the process. Uh, but what we'll likely see if, and this is depending on the negotiations that happen within the coalition and how much the far right can be sort of catered to, is that they may end up saying, okay, we're going to exactly like adjust a few parts of this bill, or maybe we'll break it up into different kinds of bills. Maybe we won't have it as, as legislation. Maybe we'll try a different kind of policy. This is another tactic that we've also seen in the past. Um, we really don't know. And uh, and again, there's a, there's a strong tactical thinking within the coalition of what can best advance it. And they may end up saying that if the protests, for example, die down in a couple of weeks, like almost completely, then they'll just pass it very quickly. Um, again, I think the far right parties right now, they have this idea that as long as they just get it through, that that, it, that in itself is a success. But as long as they do, as long as they can do it without, again, like this kind of massive uh, uh, economic disruption, that that would be the easiest way. So they're waiting for the opportune time. Um, and either way, you know, as we're seeing the government kind of accumulate more and more authoritarian direct control, they might also find that, you know what, we don't have to spend more, much more of our energy on judiciary. We can keep uh, doing these other things if people are still having their eyes on the courts. Uh, again, time will tell what, what unfolds, but uh, it, it's this is why the protest movement is trying its best to keep its eye on the ball uh, and really trying to make it as uh, difficult as possible for the coalition to get anything through. But um, yeah, we'll have to see how that turns out. I think Israel had five elections over the course of four years seem to come to an end with the most recent election of when Netanyahu returned to power. Could we say that Israel is going to be heading back to the polls again? Uh, it's always hard to tell. Um, I mean, Israeli politics is infamous for its volatility and its instability. And it's surprising enough that the far-right government has kind of held off all these months, considering the massive opposition. Uh, but it's really hard to say. Um, it, it has been interesting that in the past maybe two three weeks uh at least a lot of public polling has shown that uh like the Likud party has sort of dipped quite uh, uh quite a bit in its support and other parties like Benny Gantz's party uh who's a former army chief and kind of 
regarded as one of the main rivals uh, of Netanyahu, that he actually had a huge bump up in the polls. So there's a sense that there's a kind of public shift, but it, again, these polls aren't necessarily, they're, they're not fortune tellers, so we really don't know what's going on. And this is why also the people like Netanyahu, even though he knows that support, even within his, even within his own following is decreasing, that just will make him more intent on trying to keep this coalition intact. So he will maybe give even more to the kind of more radical uh, demands of his coalition partners. He's really in desperate survival mode. Uh, and it really comes down to how well he's able to kind of play all these different partners. And so, yeah, we really don't know if, uh, if, the, co if the coalition manages to break apart um, within a couple of months or maybe the far-right coalition will surprise us and actually even last longer than a year or two years. But on the whole, it's hard to see anything particularly shifting. Part of why we've had so many consecutive elections over the past few years is that Israeli society, for the most part, is quite firm in where they stand, in their political ideas, in which political party they support. And like I said, this is really just a battle within the right-wing camp and more about who can fulfill their goals in, a, in an easier way that doesn't disrupt or cause problems for uh, Jewish-Israeli society. For the moment, there isn't much to say that there'll be like a big recalibration. I mean, keep in mind that the opposition parties that are opposing the current government and uh, the anti-judiciary agenda, they don't have the numbers to actually run a Knesset. Um, and it's not just in terms of Jewish-Israeli society, but the fact that many of the Jewish-Israeli opposition parties uh, led like centrists like Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz, Avigdor Lieberman, um, they have no interest in partnering seriously with the Arab political parties in the Knesset, the ones that represent Palestinian citizens, which at the moment are Ra'am, which, which is an Islamist party uh, that was in the, in the previous government to change and is now in the opposition, and uh, Hadash Ta'al, uh, kind of like a, a communist uh, liberal alliance uh, led by Ayman Oudi and Ahmed Tibi. And for these opposition, the Jewish Israeli opposition parties, they don't see themselves as partners with these Arab uh, with, with these Arab politicians, um, which is rather stark. Like they, the two Arab parties have a lot of kind of core similarities, but they're, you know, Ram was very willing to ally with right-wing parties in order to be in the government. And Hadash Ta'al is much more adamant against that. They're trying to create a central-left bloc. And both those uh, political strategies are actually being rejected. When you see the meetings of the heads of the Jewish-Israeli opposition parties, they don't invite Ayman Oudeh or Ahmed Tibi or Mansour Abbas. And that's, in the Knesset, that's 10 seats at the moment. Uh, and that's not even mentioning Palestinian citizens who voted for a party that didn't come across the threshold, didn't cross the threshold, or you know that didn't vote at all. And so just those numbers-wise, they, they can't defeat Netanyahu. They can't get rid of this far-right government. And if they want to do so, they have to ally with members of the far-right coalition or with the Haredi parties, which have also really absorbed and aligned with a lot of these far-right ideas. So this is kind of, again, showing this this contradiction of what the Israeli opposition conceives as real democracy and equality. Their conception of democracy does not really want to include Palestinian citizens. Their conception of equality cannot really dream of the idea that, that Arabs inside the state have full equal rights and not just kind of a few... Uh, economic budgets here or uh, like a few some better social uh, economic infrastructure they cannot engage with these arab parties they still see them as beyond the pale and their ideas of full equality and anti-occupation as beyond the pale um 
so this is the kind of the dilemma that also these uh, these parties are facing and really shows again the depths to which Israeli politics has really um, kind of ossified itself uh, against Palestinians, even those inside the state. We'll see what an election ends up, uh, what an election brings and, you know, everything can also change and different alliances always occur. And a lot of this, again, falls down to what happens with the Likud party and Netanyahu. Um, but for the moment, we are not seeing anything to really break this ice that has been with us for the past couple of years. Amjad Araki, thank you very much for all of that. That was fascinating stuff. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis, and opinion from the region.